Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain standing and actually grab your Bible or the Bible on your cell phone or the pew Bible in front of you and turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 8. I want us to remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. Luke chapter 8, we're going to read verses 16 through 21. Uh, Patrick made a comment to me this morning as we made our way to worship. He said, I love going through books of the Bible. Uh, that is our tradition. We believe in Lectio Continuum. And the reason we do that is because we believe that all, all of God's Word is God-breathed and is useful uh, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so as we do this, it allows uh, the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts in His time and His season. So Luke chapter 8, verse 16 through 21. Uh, hear God's Word this morning. Jesus says, falling upon uh, the tell of the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. Nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your word says to us through Jesus' half-brother, James, we are to be hearers and doers of the word. So we pray that your spirit would come this morning and make us just as that. Help us to be hearers of your word and doers of your word in this service of worship. And as we worship you by serving you, by leaving today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I saw a star on October 30th. 2008. It was in Charlotte, North Carolina in the, the Coliseum there. I had bought my wife tickets to the New Kids on the Block concert. Happy wife, happy life. As we made our way into the Charlotte Coliseum that night, there were about 35,000 people that entered the building that night. 
34,995 of them were excited women with their daughters. Five of us were husbands who lived by the motto, happy wife, happy life. As the women waited with bated breath and full joyful expectation for the new kids on the block to hit the stage and take a, stri- a, a, a trip and a stroll down memory lane, word began to spread throughout the auditorium that Natasha Bedingfield, the opening act, would not be able to perform that night because of laryngitis and that there was this new person, new artist that really wasn't known, but the New Kids on the Block management was confident that she would be an up-and-coming artist, would be opening up for the New Kids on the Block that night. And so as this lady made her way to the stage, uh, there was chatter among the 34,995 women. Uh, the rest of us guys just waited as we would the rest of the, the evening. But what I noticed was that as the women gave much disrespect to this lady that was performing, there became a point in, the, in her performance where there was a straw that broke the camel's back, where she thanked the new kids on the block for the opportunity to perform that night, and she made a, a joke with a double meaning that, regardless of what happens for the remainder of the night, know that you're leaving here tonight and you saw a star. And at that point, she lifted up a stick that had a star with glitter all on it. And in the center of the star was a circle that she put up to her eyeball, and she began to sing the remainder of her song. I, I laughed at the double meaning, that maybe she was a star, maybe the new kids on the block were the star, but regardless, we did see a physical star that night because of her prop. I laughed. The 34,994 women began to boo her and began to loudly chant, we want new kids, we And I began to turn to my left to to take a look at my beautiful, gentle, godly wife, who's shy and an introvert by nature, as you know. This precious, godly woman who I, just about eight years prior to that, had had exchanged holy nuptials. Up to that point, although we dated for five years, been married for eight years, I had never seen Jennifer Klein make a fist in her life until that night. And as I looked at her, she began to flex her fist, we want new kids, we want new kids. I didn't recognize this woman at all. Eventually the lady left the stage, new kids on the block came on the stage and they enjoyed the performance. But as we made our way home, uh, we enjoyed, I enjoyed my wife uh, replaying the night in her mind. And as she smiled, I smiled because happy wife is happy life. As she began to hiss and complain about the opening act, I I made a bold prediction that night on October 30th, 2008. I said to my wife, I said, honey, I know none of you liked her, but she will be huge. My wife began to hiss at me. You liked that performance. You agreed with the lyrics of her songs. I said, I didn't say that, honey. I just said that she's going to be huge. Well, sure enough, within about 30 days, that, that lady that was performing that night, her song, her, hit, her initial single began to blow up the airwaves. And by January 17th, 2009, all of the United States of America was going gaga 
over Lady Gaga. So my bold prediction was true. Now, why do I share that with you this morning? It's not because I'm promoting Lady Gaga and her music. But Jennifer and I, as we replay that situation that we experienced in our life, we've laughed because we said, we've asked the question, what changed? What changed in the course of 30 days as her her song, Just Dance, began to blow up the airwaves? That night, 35,000 people in that building could have just danced, and 15 minutes later, new kids on the block would have taken the stage. What changed in two and a half months that they went from booing and hissing at her and chanting, get off the stage, we want new kids, to now she has the number one hit single at that time in the nation. Do you know what changed? Their approach to her. Is there something in your life, I know there is, that you dread and maybe in and of itself, it's really not that bad of a thing, but you, you realize if you could change your approach to it, you might enjoy it more. Maybe for some of you, it was a family vacation, because it wasn't just going to be your family vacating together. It was going to be you and your extended family vacating together. Well, if you didn't experience that yet, you're going to experience it over the holidays, aren't you? And maybe what needs to happen to, for you to really enjoy that experience is a change in your approach, a change in your attitude for that situation. Maybe that's the way you feel about committee meetings at church. Or maybe that's the way you feel about staff meetings at work. And in and of themselves, they're not a bad thing. They're actually a needed thing, a necessary thing. But perhaps they're able to enjoy it most, what you need is to change your approach. There's something in my life that it isn't a bad thing, but I definitely would get more out of it if I changed my approach to it. Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. But sometimes as I make my way to the car to make my way to Rotary, I think to myself, you know, if I got mugged and beaten up today and left for dead, it might be a good excuse not to make it to Rotary today. We can be honest here, can't we? But then I get there and I say, these are wonderful people in our community. And then my heart is changed because as I'm there, I begin to get to know people in our community. I'm encouraged by my time and my relationship that I'm building with them. What's the problem? The problem is not with Rhodey. The problem is with my attitude before I get there, right? These are all peripheral things, and I'm making a point for a reason. That you see in a very small way how your life could be greatly affected for the better. It could be changed for the better if you changed your approach to it. That is most importantly true about your relationship with Jesus Christ. These verses that we read today address the significance of coming to Jesus with the right approach. When we open up the Word of God, we're coming to spend time with Jesus. When we come to worship and open up the word of God to hear it read and preached and taught, we're coming to have an opportunity to spend time with Jesus. So what's your approach when you come here? Do you come enthusiastic? Do you come excited? Because when we come to this 
service, we come here not to meet a musician, but to meet the maker of the heavens and the earth. We come here not to be impressed by a civic organization, although that can be good and can be helpful and and to be commended. But we come here to meet our creator and our redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so notice what Jesus highlights in our approach to him in verse 16. He says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. Jesus is the light of the world. His gospel is the gospel lamp that lights our way and the path for our life. And so Jesus says, pay attention to how you approach me. Because no one after lighting just a simple lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed. But what do you do with it? You put it on a stand. Why? So that those who enter the room may see the light. How do you approach Jesus in your life? Do you come so that he might be exalted and magnified? Or do you find yourself tempted not to exalt Christ in your life, but to be embarrassed that others know, or if others would learn, you follow him? Well, Jesus warns us in verse 17... That you can fool yourself about how you approach him, but you can't fool God. Look at what he says in verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Do you know what I like about speaking to children and youth in terms of sermons and Bible studies? They're much more transparent and honest with you when they're bored. (laughs) As adults, we've learned, that, we've learned the ability to be able to fake it through a boring message, a boring Bible study, something that doesn't strike us and we're not engaged. But I love teaching children and youth because when you look at them, what do you know? You know they're tuned out. Jesus warns us and he says, hey, you might be able to fool one another. You might be able to fool yourself. But you can't fool me about your attitude, your perspective, your approach when you come to me. So the big question I have for you this morning in relationship to this passage is, how do you approach Jesus? How do you approach God's word? Well, through the remainder of these verses, I believe there are two parts to an appropriate approach to God's Word. I believe there's two parts, an appropriate biblical approach to Jesus. There's a lot that could be said, but in verses 18 through 21, there are really just two uh, points I want to make about an appropriate biblical approach to God's Word, a biblical appropriate approach to Jesus. And the first part of that appropriate approach is listen attentively. Listen attentively. Notice what Jesus says in verse 18. He, he highlights essentially somewhat of like a, 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 re, a sowing and reaping principle, which is, makes perfect sense in the context because last week Patrick preached on the parable of the soils. And remember that Jesus compared the gospel, seed to, a, the gospel to a seed that is scattered. And Jesus 
highlighted for us the different types of soils, which are the different types of hearts that gospel seed can encounter. It can encounter hard hearts that are just hardened to the gospel. It can encounter shallow hearts that somewhat begin to get enthusiastic about the gospel, but then things, uh, the, the persecutions and the difficulties of life uh, scorch it out. And then there are those that have infested hearts, that they love Jesus. They want, in some sense, they, they seem to want to love and serve Jesus, but the cares of this world and the pleasures and the possessions this world offers us just crowds it out. But at the end of the day, there's only one good soil. And it's the soil of the heart that is fertile to receive the gospel seed. And how do you know that? Because the gospel seed takes root and bears fruit in the life and the heart of the believer. So on the tail end of that, Jesus gives us his command in verse 18 to listen attentively to the word. And he highlights this somewhat of a sowing-reaping principle. Notice what he says in verse 18. Take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. What's he saying? he's affirming exactly what we affirmed in our faith with Westminster Shorter Catechism number 90 today. How does the word become effectual to your heart for salvation? You have to attend to it with diligence. you got to work at it. you got to prepare. How do you prepare? By praying. Lord, prepare my heart to see you and to see myself and to see the contrast between us and bring me to repentance, O God. In other words, that the one who already has, more will be given. And the one who comes, not hungry, hostile, even when he has, will be taken away unless the Holy Spirit draws him, changes him by regenerating his heart. How do we see this throughout the course of redemptive history? In a number of places. A number of places we have places where God's people did not listen attentively, and we see the consequences. The beginning we see it in Adam, right? God told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge and good of evil. But how did he listen to God's word? He didn't listen attentively because he began to listen to the serpent instead who said, did God really say? We see in Samson's life a man who did not listen attentively to God's word as he made this Nazarite vow in his his work as a judge. He He was vowed to never drink strong wine, he was not to ever come in contact with with anything unclean, and he was to remain single all the days of his life. What do we know about him? He got drunk repeatedly. He ate honey from a dead carcass, which by the way is not clean. And we see his just rebellious sexual behavior. And what's most sad about Samson is that he didn't listen attentively to God, that there came a point in his life where it says this about Samson. He did not know the Lord had left him. How did he approach God's word? He didn't listen attentively. How do you approach God's word? Here's the danger. God's word can cut one of two ways in your life. It can either cut into soft you or cut into hard you, cut, cut you to harden you. And so what we're about here today is serious business. In fact, it's dangerous business. And what's most shocking in Israel's history is when we 
see how much they had not listened to God's word, that they had actually misplaced God's word, as we learn in 2 Kings chapter 22. That God's people that had been given God's word, it had actually been so neglected, they had failed to listen to it attentively, they had ignored God's word so much that they, they lost the book of the law. And so at one point as they're trying to do some spring cleaning on the temple, Hilkiah, the high priest, comes to King Josiah and says, King Josiah, look. Look what we found. And Josiah said, what's that? And they said, the book of the law of the Lord. And Josiah says, really? Well, read it to me. And so Hilkiah, the high priest, begins to read the book of the law to the Lord. But what happens in Josiah's life, he listens attentively. And the the, the scriptures say that this is how he responded, that he tore his clothes in repentance. How do you listen to God's word this morning? Do you approach God's word by listening, listening attentively to God's word and saying, Oh God, if there be any sin in me, show me. And I might repent. Unless you say, well, I've been raised in the church my whole life. Tanner, your preaching can never teach me anything. Because, frankly, I'm just so smart. I would say this to you. Remember the teenage Jesus in the temple. How he listened attentively. Jesus was the one that the word was all about. Luke 24. All the scriptures are about him. All the scriptures point to him. All the scriptures are revealed by him. And point to him and fulfilled in him. And yet our Lord Jesus said this as he was tempted by the Satan in the desert. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What do we learn about Jesus' approach to God's word in that moment? He listened attentively every day. I want to thank you for giving me a few days of vacation after we got over COVID. I was reading a book by J.C. Ryle called The, The Five English Reformers. And he highlights in that book five English reformers that were martyred during the reign of Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. One of the first men he recounts his story is a a gentleman by the name of Bishop John Hooper, who was the Bishop of Gloucester from 1551 to about 1555. Um, Within the first three years of his ministry as Bishop of Gloucester, it became to John Hooper's attention that one, a very high-ranking official and a high-ranking man in the community was guilty, of, was guilty of adultery. And so Ryle says that Bishop Hooper called for Sir Anthony Kingston to come before him. And basically John Hooper preached to him in his office, told Sir Anthony Kingston to repent. And this is how Sir Anthony Kingston responded. It says that he responded with, Abusive language. Don't go into detail about what that means. Don't know if there are any expletives, but there was abusive language. So a sense that he probably called Bishop John Hooper everything under the sun. But he didn't stop there. Wait, there's more. Sir Anthony Kingston only basically 
cursed John Hooper out, but then he also struck John Hooper, Bishop John Hooper, on the cheek. Now, how was he approaching God's word? He wasn't listening very attentively, was he? He was hostile. Fast forward the story a little bit further. Queen Mary takes over in reign, and for 17 months, John Hooper is in imprisonment. And he, makes his way, he makes his way back to Gloucester where he's going to be martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to be burned at the stake. And John Hooper, before he is martyred, receives people for visits with him. And lo and behold, Sir Anthony Kingston, the same man that had struck John Hooper on the cheek for uh, confronting him about his adultery, comes to visit John Hooper in prison. And do you know what Sir Anthony Kingston begs John Hooper to do? He says, Bishop, recant. Don't be burned. And John Hooper looks at him and he says, look, the Lord has called me to serve till the end. This is how Sir Anthony Kingston responds. responds. Bishop Hooper, I thank God that I ever knew you. Seeing God appointed you to call me being a lost child. Listen to this, he says, Bishop Hooper, by your good instructions, when I was being a fornicator and an adulterer, God hath brought me to detest and forsake the same. What changed? The way Sir Anthony Kingston approached God's word. He went from a man that was being uh, resentful and resistant to God's word to being a man that was receptive and repentant in the face of God's word. And J.C. Ryle records the fact that John Hooper wept more after that conversation than all the 17 months he wept during his imprisonment facing his certain martyrdom. Why? Because ministers of the gospel long to see people approach God's word wanting to change. Wanting to be saved. Wanting to be sanctified. Wanting to be conformed in the likeness of their Savior. So friends, my question to you today is how do you approach God's word? In your personal quiet time, do you come and open up God's word ready to listen attentively? Do you come hungry or do you come hurried? Do you come diligent and devoted, focused? Or do you come distracted? So when the church this week heard me say something, I said, well, i got to go pray about something. And they convicted me. They said, no, you get to go pray about something. That was good. How do you respond? How do you approach God's word? Here's the deal. Verse 17 tells us, you may fool yourself, but you can't fool God. 
For nothing is hidden that will not be manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. The way you approach God's word is this, that thy word, O God, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my my faith and my path. Amen? Psalm 119. Paul says it this way, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So how should we approach God's word? We should approach God's word enthusiastically, excited, taking preparation, being diligent, saying, begging God to prepare our hearts to receive his word. Why? Because we know that these words are the words of life. Not only to live life more abundantly here, but to live for eternity with our Savior and our Maker. That's the first part of approaching God's word appropriately is we listen attentively. But secondly, we are to live obediently. And that's what we see in verses 19 through 21. There's a scenario, a situation that happens here. It says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. I want you to picture the scene here. Obviously, they get Jesus' mother and brothers get to the, the place where Jesus is teaching, and they can't come in. But in the original languages, it really turns it from black and white into color. It's this idea that they go up to, to this door, and it's crowded, and they're blocked in, and they're trying to, they're trying to look, they're trying to peek, and no luck there. So then they, they run over here, and they look to try to get in to, to see Jesus and, and see if they can reach him, and no luck there. So then they go to this door, and they try, they're just continuously, repeatedly trying to get in to see Jesus, but they're prevented from getting to Jesus because the crowd is so large. And so then they begin to realize, if we can't get to him, let's just pass the word to the crowd. Hey, psst, psst, tell Jesus his mother and his brothers are outside, and they want to see him. Now, we learn from the other Gospels that really they, they think Jesus is beginning to wear himself out or that he's gone a little bit loopy because of the claims he's making about himself. And so the, the, the original actual intent of Jesus' mother and brothers at this point is that they want to snatch Jesus from the crowd. They want to snatch him from the room and shake him and try to get some sense into him. And what does Jesus say? Verse 20 and 21. As he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you, but he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What's the second appropriate response as we approach God's word? It's to live obediently in response to it. Now hear me, this is not teaching salvation by works. This is rather affirming what Jesus taught, that you will know a tree by its fruit. It says in John's gospel, as he said in the parable of the sower, that, that the good soil will receive the gospel seed. It will take root. It will bear fruit. So Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Jesus is not contradictory here. He's not confusing himself or trying to confuse us. But the point that Jesus is saying, that if you approach God's word correctly and you receive it with faith and love, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, you will practice it in your life. You will live obediently to God's word. And he goes on to say that that's actually who knows me most. I had one of you ask me before the service, what was it like being out in Oklahoma? Let me tell you this. It was wonderful. Do you know why? Some people that I've only had a couple of hours with them over the last year, I feel like I've known them for my whole life. Why is that? Because there's something far deeper and far greater that connects us. Do you know what that is? It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. I feel closer to some of those individuals in Oklahoma, and I've only spent three or four hours with them than I do with some of my family members I've known for years. Why is that? They know Jesus. We're connected by Jesus. Take a stroll down the corridor of redemptive history, and we'll see those who have lived obediently and disobediently to God's word. Adam's the first that disobeyed, right? What was the consequence of that? It brought sin into all the world, and thus the consequence of sin that we still experience today. But Noah was given the word of God, and how did he approach God's word? God said, hey, Noah, I want you to build an ark. It's going to flood. It's going to rain. And Noah's like, it hasn't rained in days. But he lived obediently to God's word. Abraham was given an odd command. I want you to leave the land of Ur and go to the land of Canaan. At the point of Genesis chapter 12, it's just leave the land and I'll tell you where you're going eventually. How does Abram respond to Genesis chapter 12? He lives obediently. He responds to God's word. He listens to it and then he obeys it. But Moses, bless his heart. Isn't that a southern thing? Bless his heart. What does that mean? He ought to know better. God told him. Speak to the rock, and water will gush out so that God's people can have a drink of cold water. But what did Moses do? He didn't speak to the rock. Do you remember what he did? He struck the rock with a staff. And as a result of that, what seems to be a simple mistake prevented Moses from going into the promised land. He had to watch from a distance. Think about David. A man after God's own heart, but did he live perfectly obediently to Jesus? No. We remember Bathsheba, don't we? And although I believe the scriptures are clear that God forgave him of his sin, unfortunately he lived the rest of his life with the consequences of that sin. Because he didn't live obediently. But what about our Lord Jesus? How did he approach God's word? Did he live obediently? Yes, he did. He said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In fact, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane when our Lord Jesus is conflicted between what he wants to do and he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt what the Father has called him to do. So you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord Jesus gets down on his knees and begins to pray and begins to stress so much that the scriptures say, Luke's gospel says, that he sweat drops of blood, which physicians and scientists say that you physically can do if you experience that much significant stress in your life. And what does Jesus pray? God, if there be any way, Heavenly Father, if there be any way that you could let this cup of suffering pass from me, so be it. Yet, not my will, but thy will be done. How does Jesus approach God's word? He lives obediently. Now, for those of you that are getting ready to become members of the church, let me say this. Unfortunately for you, you may be agreeing to do something that you would never have recognized because one of our new members uh, was texted this morning, do you have a golf club? And they said, yes. And they brought it to me. I said, well, they said, we assume you need it for a sermon illustration. I said, I do. Here's what I want you to see about our approach to God's word. Our approach to God's word needs to be like a golfer's approach to this golf club. Now, I'm not a golfer, but as they say, those who can't do, teach, right? So, 
Imagine that this golf club represents God's truth. Now, I'm told by golfers, and I'm going to demonstrate by what I'm getting ready to do here that I'm not a golfer, that the first thing you need to learn to be a good golfer is you need to have the right grip. And the same is true for us in our approach to God's Word. We've got to have a grip on the truth. We have to have an appropriate grip on the truth. But there's another aspect to being a good golfer. Just like there's another aspect in your walk with Christ, because if all you get is a grip on the truth, do you know what you have the danger to become a Pharisee? That you think now that you've got a right grip on the truth, you know what you can do? You can just swing and hack at every single bun around you because they don't have an accurate grip on the truth. That's how we get Pharisees. There's another aspect to your walk with Christ and your approach to God's Word. Not only do you need to have an appropriate grip on the truth, but I'm told by golfers that the next thing you need to work on is your stance. Am I right? Is my grip good? No. Sort of? Okay. That what you need to work on next after the grip is your alignment to the club. That's the second part of your approach to God's Word. Not only do we need to have a firm grip on the truth, But we need to have an alignment, a proper alignment to God's word. How so in your walk? Jesus says, those who are my father, my mothers and my brothers are those who hear my word and do it. In your walk with Christ, is there anything that's out of alignment with God's word? You know the answer. There is for every, every single one of us in here. So can we stop fooling ourselves and say that when we come to God's word, either personally in our personal worship or in our corporate worship time, we're going to beg God to make our grip on his truth firm and that he would make us more in alignment with his word. But what about in your witness? J.C. Ryle says this, that the soul that is content To go to heaven alone is the most selfish soul there is. When it comes to your witness for Christ, is your witness in alignment with the truth? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes the Father except through Him. So I think there's a practical application for our church right now in relationship to this this passage. I'm past time, I know it. Dock my pay. We are entering into a season of elder and deacon recommendation time. And you have in your bulletin some inserts this morning for elder and deacon recommendations. What should you do with them? Well, believe it or not, this passage of Scripture tells us what we need to do. Contained on these these pieces of paper are passages of Scripture That every single one of us needs to go home and read those passages of Scripture and pray. 
we need to pray that God would bring to our minds men in our church that resemble those qualifications. And not only does every single member of the church need to be doing that, but there's something in addition to that that every man that's a member of this church needs to do as well. You need to go home, read over these qualifications, pray that God would bring to your mind someone that, that qualifies and resembles that. And then you need to pray this, God, what needs to happen in my life so that I will be in alignment with these qualifications? Because this qualification is your word. And you know where we want to get to as a church? We want to get to the, to the point in the life of our church. We began kind of experience a little bit last year a little bit. That when we come to this elder and deacon recommendation time and, and we begin to get together and pray about this, we say there are so many men in our church that love the Lord Jesus, that are walking with the Lord Jesus, that are leading their families for Jesus' sake. Which one do we pick? Which one do we choose? It's like picking your favorite flavor of ice cream. It's like picking between your favorite children. That's where we want to get as a church. And how do we get there? By having an appropriate approach to God's word. By having an appropriate approach to Jesus. It's that simple. But it ain't easy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that is clear and concise and convicting. And what I pray, God, is that you would forgive me for coming hurried and not hungry to your word. For looking for places where you're just going to agree with me rather than listening attentively to what you have to say. And Father, forgive me, forgive us that we live disobediently to you and we walk away and we stray. Make us a people that knows the truth, that has a grip on the truth, and that seeks to have our lives in alignment to your word, to our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.